It's a privilege to be here with y'all this evening. Uh, We are here tonight, and we will be here over the coming several days to think together about the grace of the gospel. And the gospel is full of grace. It tells us of the grace that is in Jesus Christ. The Spirit uses the gospel to work reconciliation between the Holy Spirit and His people. The gospel is a gospel of grace. But to see even the outermost periphery of the grace of the gospel, we first have to come to terms with our need of the gospel. And if we're honest with ourselves, if we have seeing eyes hearing ears, we have to ask if many in our world today, many of our friends, many of our family members, if they really see the need of the gospel, do they? I don't think that they do. But, but that's, that's too easy. Too often we ask questions about others Because that's more comfortable than asking the same question about ourselves. If we ask the question about others, we get to examine. If we ask the question about ourselves, if we let the question get into our own hearts, then we get examined. So tonight, together, let's ask ourselves the question that is at least implicitly before us. What does the gospel need? And do you see your gospel need? Well, to see our need, I think it probably is best to begin at the beginning. Uh, To see the depth to which we have fallen, it's best perhaps to start at the heights from which we fell. As we all know, on the sixth day of creation, as the very crown of Of all that He had made, God made mankind. And we read of that creation in Genesis 1, verse 26, where we read this, And God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the fowl of the air, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. That's Genesis chapter 1. God's sweeping account of the creation of all things. The creation of all of reality outside of God himself. Now in Genesis chapter 2, it's as if the scriptures sort of zoom in and give us a more detailed account, a more detailed study of that creation that had been briefly described in Genesis 1, we then get it more detail. This is the creation of man in fine, granular detail. And there, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, we read this, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And then just a little bit further down in Genesis 2, verse 21, we read this, And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. Now, we haven't taken the time to read all of Genesis 1, its account of God's creation. But one of the striking aspects of that creation that emerges from Genesis chapter 1 is God's unbridled power, his overriding authority in his creation. He speaks. And the world spring into existence. He speaks and light breaks forth. He speaks 
and the seas gather, and the birds fill the skies, and the animals roam the earth. Romans 4 verse 17 tells us that God calls things that are not as though they were, and we see Him doing that in Genesis chapter 1. God speaks, and He speaks things into existence. But not mankind. With mankind, God molds him from the dust of the ground. He fashions him into this bodily form. But it's just a form. That body that God forms out of the earth, it has eyes, but it can't see. It has ears, but it can't hear. There's no life in the molded dust. And then the Lord, the one whose glory fills the heavens and the earth that he only a few days before had made. It's as if he stoops down and he breathes life into this man. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Adam's first inhalation was the exhaled breath of life from Almighty God. Later that same day, the Lord took a rib from Adam's side, fashioned it into a woman. And when Adam woke from his sleep, he saw the woman that God had made. What did he do? He sang. He burst forth in poetry. That's what we find in Genesis 2, verse 23. Adam just has been woken from his sleep, and we read this. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now it loses a bit of its melody in the English translation, but this is poetic. Adam is singing. From Adam's first sight of this woman, she has his heart. He's singing his love. Down in verse 25 of Genesis 2, we read this, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. That might make some of us a little uncomfortable. But God is making a point about the nearness of Adam and Eve. There are no barriers. There are no boundaries of openness. They were completely wholly open to the other, with the other. They were perfectly, wholly vulnerable, with no shame. There was no corner of their personalities where they hid things from each other. There was no thing from the past that they kept from each other. There were no thoughts that they kept concealed from each other. They were open. They were together. They were one. And there was no shame. And they were bearing together the image of God. When God created mankind, He was intentionally, purposefully crafting a created thing that bore His image. A creature who bore the impress of the Creator. A creature who was like Him in some infinitesimal analogous way. And with those image bearers, God had frequent communion, frequent fellowship. He speaks immediately to Adam. From the language of Genesis 3, verse 8, it appears that God pretty regularly communed with Adam and Eve in the garden, the garden that He had made specifically for them. Think of it. You can't exhaust the glory of Adam and Eve's estate. You can't find the bottom of their blessedness. They bear the image of the thrice-blessed God. They breathe the breath of life from Him. They have perfect entire communion with each other and they have it all in a garden that has been specifically made to meet their every need, their every desire to overflowing. And then it all collapsed. Or more appropriately, they 
pulled it all down. As we all know, God willingly had entered into what we call the covenant of works with Adam. And like all covenants, the covenant of works was a relationship. In this case, a relationship between God and Adam. But it was a relationship that had parameters. It carried certain obligations for Adam. And one of those obligations, it wasn't the only obligation, but centered at the very core of Adam's covenantal relationship with God was this command recorded in Genesis 2 verse 17 that Adam was not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If he did, if Adam did eat of that forbidden tree, he would die. And as we know, Adam did. We don't have the time to explore the obscenity of that sin, the obscenity of the fall of our first parents. But Adam and Eve ate the fruit. And with that sin, everything fell into ruin. The ground under Adam's feet turned against him. God tells Adam in Genesis 3, verses 17 through 19, that because of his sin, the ground is cursed. It will render up to Adam thorns, thistles, Working that land will be hard. In verse 19 of Genesis 3, God says that it is only by the sweat of his face that Adam will be able to wrench food out of the ground. In verse 17, God says that in sorrow, Adam will eat of the produce of the ground all of the days of his life. Now, Adam will eat. God will continue to provide for him through the land. But it will be a life of toil. The very things which God had made to bless Adam and to provide for him, now they would bring him only sweat and labor and weeping. Because of his sin, the world into which Adam had reigned as the image bearer of the Creator it now was turned against him. And he was turned against Eve. In Genesis 3, when God had confronted Adam about his sin, his rebellion, what was Adam's first response when asked what he had done? Well, he said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree. And I did eat. The woman. Now at that point, Eve wasn't yet named Eve, so Adam isn't demeaning her by just calling her the woman. But he is blaming her. He's putting the responsibility on her. He's trying to distance himself from her so that the anger, the just, righteous anger of God can fall on her and be mitigated in its force upon him. You know, we find out later in 1 Timothy 2, verse 14, that when Adam sinned and ate of the fruit of the tree, he knew what he was doing. He wasn't deceived. The decision was Adam's. The fault was Adam's. The blame was Adam's. And Adam knew that. And he tried to push it onto Eve. Now, Eve goes on immediately to blame the serpent, so there's plenty of blame shifting occurring in the coolness of the garden. But Adam's is treachery. He had sung over Eve. She had been his delight, his joy. She had been the one for whom he was to forsake all of created reality in order that he might be one with her. And he tries to throw her on the sword of divine justice in a pathetic attempt to save his own skin. It's no mistake that when God confronts Adam and Eve in the garden, they're covered. You know, in Genesis 3-7, we're told that immediately upon their fall, Adam and Eve saw that they were naked, 
they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. They were ashamed. Back in Genesis 2, verse 25, we had seen that Adam and Eve's unembarrassed nakedness around each other was a tangible manifestation that they weren't ashamed. That there was no part of them that needed covering. No part that required obscuring. And now, they've clothed themselves. There is a part of each that isn't for the other. Blissful, singing communion. It's gone. But that's not the most trembling part. In Genesis 3 verse 9, we read this, And the Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? God calls out for Adam. No, God knows where Adam is, of course. God sees all things. He knows all things. There's nothing hidden before him. God knows where Adam is. But Adam and Eve are hiding. Verse 8 had told us that when Adam and Eve heard God's voice, when they became aware of his presence, they hid. Now, this is the God in whose image Adam was made. This is the God who had breathed the breath of life into Adam. And Adam is afraid. He's afraid of him. That's what Adam says in verse 10. He says to God, I heard thy voice in the garden and I was afraid. You know, Adam isn't just alienated from the world around him. He's not just alienated from his wife, Eve. Adam is alienated from God. He hides from his presence. He fears his maker. And it gets worse. A few minutes ago, we read Genesis 3, verse 12, where Adam sought to bring Eve in condemnation to spare himself. Look there again. Genesis 3.12, we read this. And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I did eat. Did you catch that? Adam is blaming God. He's blaming God's benevolence, God's abundant blessing for his own transgression. Sin has come into this world of wondrous bliss and it has destroyed everything. Now, God has mercy on Adam and Eve. He'll continue to care for them. He makes some marvelous promises as we doubtlessly will hear later this evening from Reverend Payne. But sin has destroyed everything. And let's be specific. Adam, by his sin has destroyed everything. Now later on in Genesis 3 verse 24, we see that God casts Adam and Eve out of the garden. In fact, we see that God has a gracious purpose in that exiling of Adam and Eve, but he casts them out nonetheless. And eventually Adam will die. In Genesis 3 verse 19, God had told Adam that he would have to labor, toil for his food, and then he says, Till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. The dust that God had gathered up to form man. The dust that God had gathered together to shape into a body into which he would breathe the breath of life. The dust that God had gathered up in order that it might play some part in bearing God's own image. It'll just go back to the ground. Everything is ruined. Everything is ruined. Now, we don't have the time to explore this at any length. But at least consider it. When God the Son came in the flesh, He took to Himself a human nature. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, the Son took to Himself a true body 
and a reasonable soul. Humanity in all of the blessedness in which God made it. Humanity without the defilement of sin. God made it so marvelously well that it can be taken into union with the Son of God. Humanity can be with Jesus' deity in one person. It is the crown of God's creation. That's what Adam had. Sinless humanity. Undefiled. And he ruined it. And now he's estranged from God. He's bound for disintegration. You know, in life, there are these moments when things change. And they change for the worse. And immediately, you know it. But you can't push backward against the moving seconds. You can't undo what's been done. You can't make things as they were ten seconds ago. You've said something that you shouldn't have said. You've done something that you shouldn't have done. And no matter what the horror or the revulsion you feel as a result, you can't change it. The moment's come. It's changed everything. And what has been made wrong can never be made right again. How Adam, even through the the fog of his fallen mind, how he must have felt something of that. How deep the dread, how sickening the dread must have been. And there's nothing that Adam can do. He can't fix it. He can't change it. He's ruined his relationship to the creation, ruined his relationship to Eve, ruined his relationship with God. That's what sin does. It destroys. It looks appealing. It looks enticing. But it destroys. Man's struggles with the created order. The alienation of Man from woman, man from man, mankind's alienation from God. It all is because of sin. The bitterness of your labors, the estrangement in your life, in your family, in your marriage, the distance between you and the God of perfect love, it's all because of sin. When we realize these things, when we see this spiraling from an Adam who, along with the woman whom he loves, bears the image of the God whom he loves in the midst of a creation that bends to his every command, the spiraling from that to an Adam who is distant from his wife, estranged from his God, as he labors relentlessly to eke out survival until the day that he dies and his body deteriorates. When you realize this spiraling, the weight, it suffocates you. And that's at least partly because, as we know, Adam's sin didn't just affect him. It didn't just ruin everything for him. As Paul reflects in Romans 5, verse 12, By one man sin entereth into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. In Adam's first transgression, we all fell. We all came under the guilt, the defilement, The curse of sin. As Augustine noted, we were all that one man. We all fell into sin. And in that sin, we all die. As we just read in Romans 5.12, death passed upon all men. 
Or as Adam or as Paul expresses it in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22, in Adam all die. And that's the real weight of sin. Yes, sin has brought disorder, ruin into creation. Yes, sin has alienated us from one another. But most importantly, sin estranges us from God. It brings us under His wrath. It brings us under the curse. It makes us fit only for hell. Now, it seems oftentimes that we can be slow to speak about hell. Or at least slow to dwell on it at any length. It can seem like a scare tactic. Perhaps it's too mercenary. As if we're to believe in Jesus only because we don't want to go to hell. But Jesus. Jesus wasn't shy to talk about hell. According to the gospel accounts, Jesus... Our loving, compassionate, merciful Jesus. He spoke of hell rather often. Much more than any other biblical figure. In places like Matthew chapter 22 verse 13, Jesus describes hell as a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, We have to be careful with some of the imagery used to describe hell. We have to be careful about how we understand some of it. But we also have to let the Spirit's words have their meaning. And Jesus tells us that hell is a place of outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's a place where humans, where sinners are in anguish, where they're in such torment in their bodies and in their minds and in their souls. Sinners are in such agony that they gnash their teeth, they grind them together under the weight of their just affliction. And in the enveloping darkness, all that can be heard is the wailing of the damned. It's a place of flaming fire, according to what Jesus says in Luke 16, verse 24. A place of sulfurous fire where the flame burns, but it never illumines. It never cuts through the darkness. And between that horrible place, between there In the realm of endless day, there is, Jesus tells us, still in Luke 16, there is a great gulf fixed so that none there can depart and none from outside can come to bring them comfort or solace. In that realm of cursing, In that realm of what Jesus calls hell fire, the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. In Mark chapter 9. It's endless torment. Endless torment. In 2 Thessalonians 1 verses 8 and 9, the Apostle Paul He's speaking of the last judgment, that last great day when Jesus shall return on the clouds and He shall gather His people to Himself, body and soul, forever. And He shall send the wicked to the second death, to their final judgment. And on that day, Paul speaks of Jesus coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Everlasting destruction. Destruction that knows no limitation, no cessation, 
in every moment of an endless age, total desolation, body, mind, soul. The commentator Leon Morris suggests that this destruction is the end of all that is worthwhile in life. It's hopeless. It's bitterly hopeless. In Revelation 6, verses 15 and 17, we're told that when the wicked see that day approaching, when they see the blinding, uncreated light of the sun coming in judgment, they'll sense what awaits them. And they'll beg the rocks of the mountains to fall down upon them rather than face the judgment of the sun and the hell that will be endlessly theirs. Those verses that we read just a minute ago out of Second Thessalonians, in Second Thessalonians 1 verse 9, Paul makes a comment. It is easy to pass right over it. It's easy even to read it incorrectly. But Paul makes this comment that ought to send a shuddering into the very depths of our souls. Paul writes that the wicked, those bound for outer darkness, they are punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. Now, that word, from, appears twice from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. In the Greek, it's the word apo. And that preposition, apo, it means something like from or away from. Now, different translations translate the word differently. You know, some more modern versions like the English Standard Version translate it as away from. The wicked will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. But that translation, I think, misses something. The everlasting destruction that forever will torment the wicked and yet never consume them, it is a destruction that comes from the presence of the Lord. Not from His absence, but from His presence. He is the one who, in His searing, holy, divine presence, administers it. In 2 Thessalonians 1.9, Paul isn't telling us that destruction is had away from the Lord. He's telling us that the destruction awaiting the wicked is a destruction that will come from the Lord. Now many of us, we we have in our heads this notion that hell is the absence of God. The being distant from God, for being, being forever out of His presence, being away from God, as the English Standard Translation has it. And certainly we have to bear in mind Jesus' rather chilling declaration in places like Matthew 7, verse 23, where Jesus tells us that on the day of judgment He will say to the wicked, Depart from Me, ye that work iniquity. There is a sense in which the wicked are cast out. But alongside that sobering realization, we have to remember We have to realize, and I say this with all reverence, that God also is in hell. He's there judging the damned. The miserable souls in hell, they are forever absent from God's favor. They're forever absent from His grace. But they're not absent from His presence. And that's the terror of hell. Not that the divine judge is absent, 
but that he is present in all of his holy justice. What does David say in Psalm 139, verses 7 and 8? In the rendering of the Scottish Psalter, he says, From thy spirit, whither shall I go? Or from thy presence fly? Ascend I heaven, lo, thou art there. There if in hell I lie. God fills all of creation. There's no place that He doesn't fill, that He doesn't uphold. The wicked have tried to hide from the judge at His coming, but they can't. And they'll never be able. You listen to these solemn words from Revelation 14, verses 9-11. through And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day nor night, who worship the beast and his image, and whosoever receiveth the mark of his name. Those who are suffering the just torments of hell, who know no respite either day or night, those who are drinking the wine of the wrath of God, unmixed, undiluted, dark, and red, Where are they being tormented? Verse 10. In the presence of the holy angels. And in the presence of the Lamb. They're in the presence of the Lamb. God is everywhere. Uh, Hilary of Poitiers, a 4th century church father, put it this way. He said, there is no space where God is not. Space doesn't exist apart from Him. He is in heaven, in hell, beyond the seas, dwelling in all things and enveloping all. Thus He embraces and is embraced by the universe, confined to no part of it, but pervading all. God is present in all of reality. There is nowhere where He is not. God sits enthroned in the praises of His saints, arrayed in robes of glistening white, a multitude that no man can number, who surround the throne and shout, Holy, Holy, Holy. And He executes just judgment on the wicked, on the far side of that great fixed gulf. Now here we have to be careful. There's an important distinction here. God delights in the presence of His redeemed saints. The atmosphere of the new Jerusalem will radiate with His light and His glory and His power. God delights in the presence of His children. And He's with them in a special way. And on the other hand... We read plainly in places like Ezekiel 33, verse 11, elsewhere also, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Tonight we worship the Jesus. We are united to the Jesus who looked upon rebellious Jerusalem, who looked upon the very people who would execute him. And he wept, longing that Jerusalem would come to him rather than rejecting him. There is a holy and a somber mystery here. God takes no delight in the death of the wicked. No delight in the judgment of the wicked. But He is their judge. 
and he isn't cruel. He's loving and he's just. You see, the judgment of the wicked, it itself is not wicked and it isn't cruel. It's just. And God is the one pouring it out. He alone is the one who is able to pour it out. And it will know no end. The souls of the damned suffering endlessly under a just and clean wrath of which they never, never, never will meet the full measure. Thomas Boston expressed it this way. He said that the sinner is bound to suffer till justice is satisfied, which, being without the sinner's reach, the punishment comes to be eternal. The infinite wickedness of sin deserves infinite judgment. But the finite sinner, he never can satisfy. He never can complete that infinite judgment. And so it continues forever. As Anthony Hokema somberly states it, the punishment which the lost will suffer after this life will be as endless as the future happiness of the people of God. It's everlasting. As the God who always judges rightly pours out His wrath undiluted. Brothers and sisters, our charge this evening is to consider the gospel need. And this is the gospel need. Sin has ruined everything. You need the gospel to understand your place in this world. You need the gospel to repair your fellowship with other people. But this, this is the need that presses most. You need the gospel to keep you out of hell's fires. Because that's what you've deserved. Like me, you were shapen in iniquity. And conceived in sin, as David writes in Psalm 51.5. Like me, you were by nature the children of wrath, as Paul writes in Ephesians 2.3. And everlasting death is what you deserve. Because God is just. And your sin is monstrous. What is your gospel need? It's the need to find yourself on the right side of that fixed gulf. Your need to be one of those who is reconciled to God rather than being judged by Him. That is your great gospel need. To have the crushing weight of sin. Adam's sin, your sin. To have the crushing weight of sin taken off. That you might be free. That's the gospel need. To have the weight that you can't lift. Be gone. And what that means, among other things, is that your gospel need... It has a name. Your gospel need is Jesus. The Apostle Paul, he he boils it all down. He gives it to us in one verse. Providentially, Dr. Beakey read it just a little bit ago. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, Paul writes, He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. As we saw just a little while ago, the the ruin, the death, it all began in the shade of the garden. And as we said before, in the garden, God voluntarily had entered into the covenant of works with Adam. 
God voluntarily had entered into this binding relationship with Adam that involved both blessings and obligations. And Adam transgressed that covenant, so he came under the curse. And through his disobedience, that curse passed upon everyone whom Adam represented. All of those who would descend from him by ordinary generation, as Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it. Adam's guilt, Adam's depravity, Adam's curse, it passed on to me. It passed on to you. Now, sometimes theologians like to argue, dispute about the point at which Adam fell into sin. Was it when he desired the fruit? Was it something in his heart that issued forth in his eating? Who knows? The Bible always connects it to the eating. God connects it to the eating. When Adam's teeth pierced the skin of the fruit, I was defiled. I became an enemy of God. I became justly subject to death and the unrelenting torments of hell. And so did you. And I've added to that debt. I've heaped up my own transgressions, my own violations of God's law. I don't need Adam's help. I'm a monster on the inside. I was born that way. And so were you. When Jeremiah wrote in Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. He was talking about my heart. It is wicked. And he was talking about your heart. It is wicked. And what Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5.21 is that God the Father made Jesus, the Son of His love, who never had known any sin. He made Jesus to be sin for us. To be sin for us. All of the guilt, all the shame, all of the filth. Jesus took it on to Himself. Jesus never was a sinner. Even hanging on the cross, desolate, alone, under the righteous judgment of God, Jesus was pure, and He was spotless, and He was clean. But he was bearing my sin. It was on him. It was in him. He had been made to be it in some way. If you call out to Jesus to save you, he was bearing your sin as well. And so the sin, the death, the alienation, the distance, the isolation, all of it, but brothers and sisters, it's the death. It's gone away. The sin whose just judgment would have tormented my soul for an endless eternity was placed on Jesus. And that sin collided with the perfect judgment of the holy God in the heaving soul and the gasping body of Jesus. And now, they're gone. Both of them are gone. My sin, the wrath of God against that sin, they're gone. The wrath has been poured out. The staggering cup of the wine of God's wrath, Jesus drank it in the darkness of Golgotha. Suspended between, between heaven and earth, he drank it to its very last, most bitter dregs, and it's gone. And God's justice is satisfied. Perfectly satisfied. You know, one of the biblical verses most dear to me, one of the verses that I first sought to etch into the minds and into the hearts of my children is 1 John 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess our sin, when we come before the Lord who sees into the hidden depths of our souls and we confess our need of His grace, He forgives us. He forgives us. But why does He forgive us? John doesn't say that God forgives us because He's faithful and merciful. He doesn't say that God forgives us because He's faithful and gracious. Those things are true, but that's not what John says here. John says that God forgives us because He is faithful and just. Faithful and just. You see, if you're in Christ, Jesus bore your sin on Calvary. And He suffered the fullness of God's divine wrath against that sin. And it's gone. The wrath is gone. Not because it's been forgotten. Not because it's been swept under the rug. But because it's been exhausted. It's satisfied. As the old hymn puts it, If thou hast my discharge procured, and freely in my room endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. As God says in Psalm 103, if you're in Christ, your sin is gone as far away from you as the east is from the west. Because God made Jesus to be sin for you. And His justice is satisfied in you. But that's only half the verse. Only half of 2 Corinthians 5.21. The second half goes on to say that God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for His people. That we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And we keep coming back to the covenant of works. But you remember what it was. In the garden, Adam had been given commands, things he was required to do. God told Adam that if he transgressed the covenant, he would die. And by implication, what does that mean? Well, it means that if Adam keeps the covenant, he'll live. But to obtain that life, Adam had to keep the covenant. He had to obey God's command. As the Westminster Confession of Faith states it, Adam was promised life upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. That's what finite man needs in order to have eternal life with God. It always has been. From our first beginning, mankind has needed obedience. He's needed righteousness in order to enjoy life everlasting with God. And that righteousness, that righteousness that Adam so catastrophically failed to obtain, Jesus obtained it. He lived a life of perfect obedience, a life of unrelenting obedience, a life that met every jot and tittle of the law. When Jesus was brought before the authorities for a show trial, even his enemies... Even those who were bent to destroy him, even they couldn't find a single thing that he'd done wrong. As we read in Hebrews 7.26, Jesus was holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. Now certainly being God, Jesus had a righteousness all his own, but he also won a righteousness he won a righteousness of the law through obedience to the law. And that righteousness he gives to his people. They become that righteousness. It's imputed to them. It's credited to them. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You're righteous. If you are in Christ this evening, you're righteous. If you're not in Christ this evening, if you flee to Him, you can be righteous 
before your feet walk out of this room. A lifetime of sin behind. An eternity of judgment to come. It can be gone before you enter the vestibule of the church. Because of what Jesus has done. When you belong to Jesus, when God looks upon you, He doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your rebellion. He sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Jesus takes the ruin and He ruins it. And He transforms it into streets of gold and a city that's lit only by the uncreated light from His beautiful face. What is your gospel need? It's Jesus. It's the easiest answer in all the world. And yet it's an answer that the angels clamored to see unfold. Your gospel need is Jesus. And I know I'm against my time, but if you'll allow me two minutes more, um, this Jesus tells us something important. And these are words written down for you. Written down not for someone else, not written down for someone else so that you can overhear them. These words are written for you. They're spoken to you. Right now in this place with your past, these words are spoken to you by Jesus. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Brothers and sisters, I don't know all of you. I know some of you, and I know people like you. I'm kin to them. I've pastored them. I've taught them. And some of you tonight are straining against hard yokes. And you're bearing heavy burdens. And they're not the yoke of Jesus. And they're not the burden of Jesus. What He offers to you this evening is rest. What He asks is that you feel the burden, you feel the crush, and you know what it is. You know that it's your sin. And you cry out to Him for help, for rest. Oh Jesus, I see my sin and I've been trying to cover it over. I've been striving in my own strength to cover it over and I can't. Oh Jesus, give me rest and make me clean. That's what Jesus wants. That's what Jesus offers. Not a resolute, industrious wrestling with the burden, but a plea for rest. I pray that all of you, by the Spirit's leading, will see the crushing weight of sin and I'll pray that you have found, have found or that you will find the rest. Because you need it. And you need it from the Jesus who says to you, who says to you tonight, Him that cometh to me, I will in no wise cast out. Let's have a word of prayer. Our great God and Father in heaven, we praise Thee tonight as the God of all holiness, the God of all mercy, the God of all love. We confess before Thee afresh tonight, O Lord, our need, for we are a people born in iniquity and transgression. We are a people who have rejoiced in the paths of wickedness. And so we give Thee thanks tonight, O Lord, for the grace that is in Jesus. For that blood that washes clean every transgression of the people of God.
for that righteousness that covers in order that thy people might be found holy and acceptable in thy sight. Be pleased, O Lord, tonight and in the days that lie ahead to work by thy Spirit in the lives and in the hearts of thy people. O Lord, be at work that in these days and in all of our days that the blessed Lord Jesus and he alone might be high and lifted up. Do what we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen.